uh, on this Wednesday to for our Wednesday night Bible study. Um, I'm going to say that, uh, you know, again, I, I say this every every time I, I stand before you, that this is taking some getting used to. Um, it is. I was hit as we as I prepared this this afternoon with that those real pangs of longing. Do you understand what I mean? In that how much I really missed my church and how hard it is to go without seeing the church on a regular basis. I will say this much. I feel like the, the, the handful of us that are gathered in this room just to produce this have become kind of like a little mini church because all we do is preach at each other all the time. Um, we're, we're being fed one-on-one. At the same time, uh, my prayer is for the, for the church, the greater church, the church that, that, that attends here, the church that listens all the time, a great, great, uh, great amount of people. And my prayer is that we don't become complacent in the midst of this, that this sharpens us. I hope it sharpens me. I've been very convicted about my own personal walk, about my study habits, my prayer habits recently, because I think the thing that I noticed, just just in in a moment to to kind of share this, I think the thing that I noticed was that you can get kind of lulled into this. Today's going to be the same as yesterday, and it's going to involve not going anywhere special. That the days can feel very pointless. Um, what I would say is this, like the man, um, like, uh, like Paul in prison, we can still sing hymns. Uh, we are, our bodies may be imprisoned in a, in a, in a sort of a makeshift prison of, of, uh, of, of, of being required to stay home, but it doesn't mean that our spirits are imprisoned. It doesn't mean that our, our, our desire to worship is imprisoned. And so I, I pray that that is freed, and it's beginning with me, not just with the gentleman or, or in this room or with the church as a whole, but beginning with me, was that this has caused me to look back and say, just how structured I am, am I in my love for the Lord, and how much do I really seek Him? Because when you don't have the, the limitations of a job, it can be very easy to put things off, can it? It can be very easy not to, not to rise early and, and pour myself into the Scriptures and, and, and spend time in prayer and pray for my church family, for the, for the losses that are happening and continue to happen within our church family, within our community, for the, the, uh, the sick and, and, and the bereaved. It can be very easy to, to put those things aside. So my prayer is that we remain sharp. That in fact, this sharpens us. That this adversity causes us as a church to rise up. It is as a church to be more committed in prayer, more committed in study, more committed in witness. That the voice that God's given us collectively becomes a voice that is, that is for the gospel every single day. That, and that it's heard in ways that it really, we never really thought of, of having it echo before Brother Brian. We thought we could always just walk up to people and tell them the, and tell them the truth. And now we, we have to find different ways, don't we? And that that, that causes a, a, a sense of innovation in the gospel. Not a new gospel, but a new presentation of the gospel. A new proclamation of the gospel and a new demonstration of the gospel. That would be my prayer. Let's read Psalm 8 and then we will pray together. And then I'll I'll take some time and and sort of walk us through Psalm 8. In Psalm 8 verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. 
When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray together. Father God, I praise you now, Father God. I thank you for the opportunity to come, Lord, and to declare this great psalm, Father God. Not the work of my own hands, Father God. Uh, the, your inspiration, Father God, into the hand and the mind of David, Father God. But the, one of the things that we celebrate now, Father, one of the great things that we celebrate as we come together is the fact that the Bible has one author. Father God, you are the author of Psalm 8. The praises, Father God, that are poured upon yourself come from your very heart, Father, that you are singing praises to the worthy of worship and worthy of praise, God. We thank you for that, Father God. We thank you for the single authorship of the scriptures so that we don't have to look beyond uh, any, so that we can look beyond every author, Father God, to the true author. We want to know what the Bible means, Father God. We must look to Christ. We must look to, to, to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in order to truly understand the teachings of Holy Scripture. Father God. So bless us now as we teach, Father God, as, as the Bible is preached and the truth is proclaimed, Father God. I pray, Father God, that I right now am a man, Lord, who is set apart for this purpose, Father God, and ready to do what you sent me to do, Father God. I pray, God, for everyone who listens, that your hearts are widened right now to receive the, the truth, Father God. I pray, God, that I would not stumble, but where, Father God, my foot is unsure, Father, I pray, God, that you will shore up the path underneath me, Lord. I thank you, Father God. I praise you and ask you, please, God, to bless us now as we listen, Father. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Psalm 8, guys, is a powerful hymn of worship. It is. It sounds to me as I read it, as, as I read through the Psalms, and I'll, I'll be the first to tell you that, that teaching through the Psalms as we are right now, um, all, all, the, all 150 of the Psalms, it, it's very easy to kind of get, I guess a cliche is best, Brother Ryan, to miss the forest for the trees, right? And you can, because... Oftentimes, even though we are experienced teachers of the Scripture who spend a lot of time reading, and if anyone who's ever preached has preached in the Psalms, because the Psalms just lend themselves to God's gospel truth just so well. They are God's gospel truth proclaimed through poem and proclaimed through song. It can be easy, can it, Brother Brian, to get caught in little nuances and then to go off for page after page after page for a little nuance because we never noticed it that way before. It is the, the novelty, Brother Kyle, of seeing that truth there. That it can be not inflated, because no biblical truth is ever inflated, but it can start to darken out other truths. It can be so bright for us, and it can seem so wonderful that we saw it. It's very hard to go into before people and, and show them how exciting this ought to be. Right, And so it's a very easy thing to lose track of when you're preaching your way through something because on every page turn, there just seems to be something so magnificent. With this, 
I wanted to be stay grounded as well as I could because I realized I could lose myself in the Psalms so easily. And, and I want to be guided through the Psalms by the Holy Spirit. I don't want to guide Him. I want Him to guide me. I don't want to point Him in directions and ask Him what does this mean. I want Him pointing me in directions and showing me what it, does, what it means so that I can share it. But when I saw Psalm 8, one of the things I, I said was it sounds like something we'd sing. Not, not, in, its, not in its message. So much, but, but men in its organization. It sounds like a hymn for today. It has repetition for one thing. Which I know as a teacher of poetry, the repetition keys me into the fact that, that our Lord isn't repeating Himself. Our Lord is emphasizing a truth. When our Lord frames Psalm 8 in verses 1 and verse 9 with that idea of, of the majestic name of the Lord that it's pretty important that we pay attention to the fact that our Lord's name is majestic. And we need to spend some time, and we will at the end of this, talking about what it means that our God has that majestic name. What does the name of God, the name of Christ, really mean? But we, we know it's a, it's, a, it's a worship hymn, and uh, it directs God's people to focus on His glory and His adoration above all the things of this world, which consume our time and our heart and our mind. It is a, a honing psalm. Do you understand what I mean by that? It's designed to sharpen. We spoke of sharpening. It's designed to sharpen us. It's designed to punch a hole in the, in the bitterness of my reality or the distractedness of my reality and cause me to look back at Christ and behold Him and adore Him again. Because God saved us with the gospel truth. But yet we remained in this wicked world. Set apart. A set apart people. A special people. A particular people. But that particular people can become distracted from time to time, can't we? That particular people can, can lose their, uh, the, the focus of their lives. This one causes me to look back and say, God, my major goal in life is to adore you. Is to offer adoration and praise to a mighty God. Look, Psalm 8.1 declares the majesty of the name of God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The name of God Above every name. We're going to talk about that specifically as it applies to the name of Christ here in just a moment. But look, whether we celebrate God the Father as Yahweh, God the Son as our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or God the Holy Spirit as the Comforter, the majesty of God, the everlasting dignity and the infinite beauty. That's my definition. The best way I can, I can come up with the definition of, of the, the Hebrew word which inspires it and the English word that, which tries to lend itself to it is the idea that the idea of majesty of the name of God, the idea, the idea of the majesty of God is this idea of the everlasting dignity and the infinite beauty of God. That's what majesty is. God is majestic before us. He strikes awe into our hearts. When the world sees Him, we tremble in His presence. He's not just a person. We're used to that. He's not just a natural force. We've seen that before, haven't we? He is a supernatural presence that's unlike any other in all of creation. In fact, all of creation stems from and flows from Him. He is the uncreated God. 
He is the I am that I am. I am who I am. He is the self-existent God. And so we, we, when we talk about His majesty, and they talk about the majesty of the self-existent God, we are highlighting that everlasting dignity and that infinite beauty. It's a heart-rending acknowledgement that our all-encompassing adoration is directed toward our Creator and not toward ourselves. Because we can spend a lot of time in, can't we, adoring ourselves? Now, typically, I think my adoration and the adoration of most men takes the form of self-pity, right? Feeling sorry for ourselves or some type of indignation where I feel like I've been done wrong by others. When I start to let God take the place at the center of, of, of my focus, at the center of my human adoration, then I stop caring very much about offenses. I stop caring very much about want or need or longing. All of a sudden, he becomes a light, as we talked about maybe with the Gospels, so bright that he dims out every other problem. He becomes a fire so hot that I can't feel the heat of any other fire that burns. The passion of God, the formalized, excuse me, the worship of God, the formalized and passion energized declaration of who our Lord is and what He means to us begins, according to verse 2, in earliest childhood. As the children greeted our Lord Jesus as He entered the temple with Hosanna to the Son of David. And in their defense, our Savior quoted Psalm 2. He says, Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. Out of the mouth of babes... And infants. He establishes. He strengthens his praise. Look. John Piper wrote this. He said. If you don't see the greatness of God. Then all things that money can buy. Become very exciting. If you can't see the sun. You will be impressed with the street light. If you've never felt thunder and lightning. You'll be impressed with fireworks. And if you turn your back. On the greatness and majesty of God, you'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. How many people do we know that are in love with shadows and short-lived pleasures? Who will spend their life. Think about it. one of the hard things, I guess maybe the troubling thing, for, gentlemen, maybe, maybe you've experienced it, was that when all of this started, it was like the world went on vacation. Some of us squirreled ourselves away in our houses. Uh, maybe surrendering to a little too much fear. A little too much fear. But others seem to have zero fear. And what they saw it was an opportunity just to play. Just to fall in love with short-lived pleasures. Because that's what the human heart does when it does not behold the majesty of the living God. It will fall in love with a, with a flame. With a candle. Because it doesn't know the sun shines. The heart of this psalm is the rightful Christian response to the glory of God that's grappled with when we gaze upon His revealed glory. We're, we're, one of the, the, the great thing about this psalm, gentlemen, is that it's going to call us to have that Isaiah 6 moment and to gaze at God rightly, to see Him through the pages of Scripture, to experience Him through the rush and the power of the Holy Spirit, to sing His praises, to do all those things that we've been taught to do, but to do them anew, to do them rightly, to do them in, in exile and isolation. So that we're, we can behold, we're not distracted by anything else. These are the least distracting times of our lives. There's literally nothing else pulling at us. That when we do that, we're going to have to struggle 
with His glory. We're going to struggle with it. Because we're going to start to see things in His glory that we never saw before. Because Brother Brian, we never looked, did we? We got just as much for the Kyle as we wanted. And we turned away and we felt filled. And he was, he, was, he was saying to us, he has so much more. But we would, not, we would not look and we would not listen. Look, David writes in Psalm, three and, Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him. What is man? Indeed, what, what are we that God even notices us? What are we that a God infinitely offended by our sin would come to earth Himself and pay the bloody price for our transgression? What are we that our Savior shed royal blood for our common iniquity? What are we that God would sacrifice Himself to pay the debt that we owed? Flawed and broken and unable to appreciate the blessings which the Lord has generously bestowed on us? That's who we are. Flawed and broken and simply put, Unable to appreciate. Unable to to comprehend the magnitude of what God has done. Unable. To look upon the cross and not see what needs to be seen. God still elevates man though. He blesses him in verses 5 and 6. You, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Made lower than God. Made lower than God. But crowned with the glory and honor which comes from bearing the image of the everlasting God. That's what our God says in Genesis 1 verse 27. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Male and female, our God created humanity in His image. Look, in doing this, our Lord bestows upon us a dignity that rises above our accomplishments. There's not dignity. There's not a particular sacredness, Brother Kyle, To humanity because we build great things. Because we have envisioned fantastic technology. Because we've set foot on other worlds. Because we have mastered many or feel like we've mastered many parts of the human body. Or the mind. Because of of works of art or, or science or engineering. There's a sacredness to humanity. Because we bear the image of God. It's an image that rises above our... Con- that it's a dignity that rises above our accomplishments. And it also refuses to be destroyed by our failures. The importance of humanity, the dignity of the person and the sacredness of each individual life is because those individual lives bear the image of God. We go to places we go, brothers, to defend, to, to defend human life... To be honest with you, not because human life in its essence is sacred. It is sacred because God says it's sacred. And it's sacred because it bears His image. Murder, hatred, neglect, racism, abortion are all attacks on the image of God in man. An image that entitles humans to reign over the earth in fulfillment of divine command. And precludes the fact that human beings be denigrated. Or decimated. Or destroyed. 
Christians cry out to Christ Jesus, our Creator God, in honor and in privilege through our worship, seeking to display His majesty for the world. So the idea, the very idea that, that Psalm 8 sets, sets up for us here is the idea that we worship so that we can display the majesty of God. That as image bearers, we have the unique responsibility and the unique privilege to offer worship to the one who deserves worship. And that worship does nothing but magnify the majesty of God. The majesty of God. Look now, verses 1 and 9 connect majesty with the name. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Then in verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Look, when we evaluate names, only one name is above every name. We're going to talk about names. O Lord, your name, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So if we're going to talk for just a few more moments as we close about names. Then there's only one name that's above every name. And that is the name of Jesus. The Apostle Paul explains to us the power inherent to the name of Jesus when he writes in Philippians 2, 9-11. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our Lord's exaltation by His Father is realized in two actions. Genuflection and declaration. Our bowing, our bowing and our declaring of God. Everyone will bow and will confess that Jesus is Lord. And this brings glory to God. The confession that Jesus is Lord brings ultimate glory to God. At the same time, liberty from sin for those who repent and believe is the work of Christ that benefits the entire world. Liberty from sin. Now, we, we need to stop and, and speak of that in, in, in more detail for just a moment. The idea that we would be turned loose from the power of sin. On one hand, we have a God uh, so majestic... So majestic that His name, the very name of God the Son, Jesus, will make every knee bow and every tongue confess. There is power inherent to the very name of God. To the very name Jesus. It's a power so much so that it is blasphemy to misuse that name. It's blasphemous to misuse the name of Christ. It's sinful to do so. On one hand, we have that majesty. And on the other hand, we have our reality. Human beings bound by sin. In need of one thing. Liberty from that sin. You know, I, I think the funny thing is that, that for a lot of us who may, I said may, we may, some of us may have taken this almost, I don't think there's any way to take this too seriously, but some of us were at times overcome by some fear, right brothers? We, we know some people that didn't pay it enough attention, and we probably know some people that were almost overcome by fear throughout this challenging time. And that one of the things that started to come up were, I guess the best way to put it is lists. We need this. All of a sudden, our lives became, again, the pursuit of groceries. Been through that yet? 
Where you, you start to say, we're almost out of this. Our brother Kyle, we're almost out of that. Or this thing over here. I don't think anybody was ready in terms of provisions for this. Now, of course, we still trust our Lord. There's no doubt about that. But a lot of our time is spent in thinking, where can I find bread? Where can I find milk? Almost like Katrina all over again, if you remember those dark days of Katrina. Almost the same as we try to say, where are we going to find these things? Things that we just ran out five minutes before, now we... Uh, now we have some trouble finding those things. I'm using that as, a, as, as just as an illustration. And the illustration is, is that it's very easy for humans to start making lists of the things that they believe they need and to, leave, and to really make an unwise list, to leave out the things that they truly need. I can think I need a new job. I can think I need a better relationship. I can think that I need um, a, a better financial plan. I can think that I need more time to spend with my children. All of those can be very good things. But what the world lacks is a God thing. All those other things are very wise things. But what, what the Lord lacks is, is freedom from their sin. Because they can have all of those things fulfilled and still be condemned. And so what we look to today is, is both the majesty of God, but also the essence of liberty from sin. Now look, liberty from sin, for those who repent and believe, is the work of Christ that benefits the world. So we know where li liberty from sin comes in repentance and belief. Uh, when, when Christ begins a public ministry, the very first word out of His mouth is, Repent. If there's one thing that we can never stop saying about the gospel is the, the, the response to the gospel in the heart of a, of a Christian is to repent of their sins. Just to repent. So repentance, a gospel without repentance is no gospel. A gospel uh, without a, a call to repent of, the, of sins is an unchristian gospel because one that Christ preached demand repentance. The name of Jesus, the, the identity of our Lord, so completely represents the freedom from the bondage of generational sin and death that His name will shatter shackles and bring liberty to captives. It's that powerful. It's not, it's not a talisman. It's not a magic word or a phrase. It's not that way at all. Christ Jesus, look, Interwoven in the fabric of the name of Jesus are prophecies that reveal the purpose of the coming of the Lord and the power uh, with which uh, He comes, uh, comes His ministry to the world. Christ Jesus reads from the scroll of Isaiah. In one of those early times in His ministry, He reads from the scroll of Isaiah in Luke chapter 4. One of those prophecies concerning Himself. Luke records in Luke 4, 18-19... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He literally lays out right there from the book of Isaiah, this is the purpose, this is why He has come. The theme, the major theme of His ministry, are going to, and let's not misuse these terms. 
Because so much of the world misuses these terms. Sees something in them that our God does not see and did not intend. Look, the response of Jesus to his proclamation, to this proclamation concerning his ministry to the world, is to say in Luke 4.21, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He doesn't say, I'm going to do all these things. When our Lord, when our Lord sits there, when he takes the scroll, when he opens it, the prophecy is fulfilled. The one who can never fail will not fail in what he purposes. Look, as much as the name of anyone is indicative of their being, the fact that Jesus was there reading from the scriptures was the complete fulfillment of all that passage promised. Before Jesus did anything, all was already accomplished. The preaching of the gospel to the poor, the message of freedom and hope to those imprisoned, an end to blindness, liberty from oppression, and ushering in the year of the Lord's favor, all is inevitable with the arrival of the messianic creator God in this cursed creation. The moment he was born, the captives were set free. The moment he was born, creation was on a path to ultimate healing in the revealing of the sons of God. The moment he was born, the cross was to be occupied and the grave was to be empty. And he was to sit upon his throne and receive a name above every name. The moment he was born. Referring to the jubilee year of Leviticus 25.10. Now this is what he's talking about. He talks about this idea of year of the Lord's favor. Some of this year of Jubilee. Leviticus 25.10 And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a Jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. A Jubilee. What's happening here is that liberty is being given. Inherent in the name of Jesus, inherent in the ministry and the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jesus, is the fact that a true year of Jubilee is going to dawn. The old year of Jubilee, the idea that, that inheritances would be returned, that, that livelihoods would be restored, pales in comparison to what the true king is going to do when he comes and proclaims a year of Jubilee. When the year of Jubilee is based on the blood of Jesus and the work of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the love of Jesus, when that year of Jubilee dawns, then all of a sudden the old debts truly are going to be canceled. The Jubilee was not just a time of cancellation of debts and the return of sold property to its ancestral ownership, but it was a return to financial freedom for those who had inherited poverty. Uh, who had inherited poverty. It was a return for financial freedom. However, similarly, Christ is declaring in His person the end of spiritual poverty and alienation of fellowship. Because in the end, the problem on this earth isn't that we've got people who are, who are financially poor. The problem on this earth is what people are poor in terms of Jesus. The problem on this earth is with people who are poor in terms of the gospel. Simply put, in this room right now, or anyone listening, if you have received the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, and, and then you have received the greatest riches in the world. If Jesus Christ has claimed your heart out of darkness and brought it into marvelous light, if He has ended your bondage to sin and death and given you eternal life, then you are richer than anyone could imagine. Because there's a world out there that thinks that what it needs is financial riches to have a fulfilling life. But Christ's promise is that in the depths of your poverty, you can have everlasting riches. 
Financial hardships are tragic, but they are unavoidable. However, they will die as this world grinds to a merciful halt. That's right. You may be poor right now, but one of these days this earth will stop spinning. One of these days the, the eastern sky is going to open and our Lord is going to return for His people. And when that happens, it's like, no matter how much you owe. It's going to burn up. Along with the bank you owe it to or the mortgage company that, that bought your mortgage, it's all going to be gone. The ultimate release from debt is going to be when Christ returns. Financial hardships will be gone. Yet the greater poverty is the one which Jesus comes to declare an end to. Oppression by sin which robs us of Christ. There are people in this world within the sound of my voice right now who've chosen sin over Christ. Who've listened to their flesh and listened to the world. Who've been in bondage in the delusion of sin. And Christ comes to break that bondage and end that delusion. Comes to declare an end to oppression by sin, which robs us of Christ. And it, remember, that oppression only releases us, only relinquishes its hold, Brother Brian, when we are spilled over into judgment and to the hell designed for the wicked. But God's answer is clear. God's answer is expressed in Isaiah 35, verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. If there's one thing we proclaim today, here in the midst of Holy Week, is that eyes would be opened and ears unstopped. That people could not see the truth, would see the truth for the first time. And people who refused to hear the truth, would hear the truth for the first time. Because I tell you, in a time of death, in a time characterized by death, it is absolutely important that people see and hear the truth. Because we do not know when death comes. Death awaits us all every single day. But now is a season of death. In which scores are being called to judgment. Judgment. It's important that people have their eyes opened. And their ears unstopped. The majesty of Jesus commands. The majesty. The majesty of the risen Savior commands. The name of Jesus beckons. And the completed work of Jesus demands that jubilee comes to someone today. Liberty. Whoever, within the sound of my voice, is in bondage to sin and death, to the oppression of Satan and the power of darkness, then today Christ destroys the bonds. He strikes at shackles. He cuts knots today. A man or a woman caught in the bonds of the devil can be set free when the blind eyes that they have are able to see and their deaf ears hear the majestic gospel of Jesus. So that is our prayer today. That if you're listening to my voice, that you have heard the gospel, that you will see the truth and that you will surrender yourself to that truth today. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to preach the gospel. And I pray, Father God, that I've done it rightly. Father, I pray that I have not done it in fancy words, Father God, or, or the seeming power of my intellect, Father God. But I pray that, that the words that I have preached today, Father God, were humble and to the point, Father God. I pray, Lord, there was no arrogance, Father God, in me, God, that, that, that bled over into what I had to say. But I pray, Father God, that I preached a surrendered word to a God who demands such surrender. I pray 
pray, Father God, for everyone who listens. I pray for eyes to be opened and for uh, ears to be unstopped, Father God. And I pray for bonds to be cut and liberty be, liberty to be given today, Father God. I pray all of that, Father God. I ask you, God, in the blood of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the power of Jesus, please, Father God, bless those who hear today. In the name of Christ, I pray, Lord. Amen.